Jeffrey, so glad to see that you're well. Great to see you too, Corey. I'm so Jeffrey, happy. It's been, it's been a year since we spoke. It's crazy. I know. I can't believe it. Well, I actually got to see you since we had the conversation. I got to see you in person and meet you at Skankfest. That's true. At Skankfest. That was crazy. I got to see you perform stand-up, and it was neat. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's got a, got a real energy that I got to meet that I didn't, I didn't know just through our Skype conversation. Yeah, Skankfest was crazy. I mean, it's always crazy, but, you know, people came over to me from Ireland, from a, a lot of different countries that, that knew me, not only from Skankfest, but from SiriusXM and from the Black Phillip show. Mm -hmm. I took pictures with, like, you know, Patrice has been gone for about eight years now. Mm -hmm. That show that we did, we did a show on Siri on uh, XM Radio, was before it joined with Sirius, called The Black Philip Show. Because Patrice I, I was did. the Black Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah. And, I, uh, did, I did, um, I did, I, and I listened to Dante's, Dante's show that he does it, now. Philip Show, yeah, I've been on that a few times. Well, Dante was his first co-host, and then he brought me on to join the, the two of them. And mm -hmm. it was amazing. It was one of my greatest honors was to be Patrice's co-host. You know? Yeah, I can imagine like the, the memories made in that time. Like, incredible, I'm sure. And so Skankfest was insane, as it always is. Right. People came in from all over the world. Right. It was really, really incredible. They had to move to a larger location because originally they were doing it at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City. And it got so big that they had to move it to Brooklyn to the Brooklyn Arcade, which I think has since closed down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that. To find that. a new a new venue. Well, they had they had uh, done one. They had scheduled one and sold tickets for Skankfest West, um, and that was going to be that was going to be in, in Houston, and that was supposed to be in in March, like the middle of March, and that got got postponed or canceled. You know, Everything due to all this. On hold. Even the Just for Laughs Festival, the biggest comedy festival in the world. You know, while I was sick, the heads of the festival were in touch with me, wishing me well. It was very special. But they postponed it till the fall, you know, because it's such a huge festival. People come from all over the world and they get, you know, it usually runs for two weeks in French and two weeks in English. But they postponed it till the fall. And hopefully people will be ready by then. Nobody knows, you know, we're in a crazy place right now. Nobody knows what's happening. I think, I, I think I've told you this already, but you know how important it is for me to have things said on the record, how important it is for me to have this platform, how important it is for me to, to communicate uh, and be sincere and be genuine in what I want to say. So what I want to say is dude, I'm, 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 very happy that I'm getting this opportunity to talk to you. Um, it makes, uh, I, you, you remember Chris Cotton? Yes, I do. Yeah, sure. Good friend of mine, Chris Cotton. Yeah. I had an interview with him and then exactly one year later did it again. So I, uh, now, you know, it makes sense to me now to be able to go back and listen to those episodes and for me on the record to be able to have told my great friend how much I, saw him as a superstar yeah i i was <laughs> just saying i don't want to follow that pattern no for sure for sure i don't i i don't either i don't want that either 
Uh, but I, I thought he was a, a legend in the comedy in the comedy industry before before anybody knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And you are a, a legend in the comedy industry, and I'm so pleased to have these on the record conversations with you where I can tell you this. And I also want to let you have this platform for this for this moment because I was I think I was inconsiderate and just I didn't know anything going on with you so I just saw that picture of you in the hospital and I was texting you for you to like give me the whole story when I didn't even go back and so this is another part of me going like the effort is the currency so I should have read all that before I started texting you and saying what's up it's like I wanted a shortcut to what the story was when I could have just read back you know you know what? So, it's very interesting that you said that because while I was so sick, um, I was getting hundreds of messages. Ron Bennington announced it on Sirius XM about my situation. And a lot of people, I guess people don't realize that you can't answer back when you're so sick. I'm laying there in the hospital, you know, and people are saying, what, like, they're asking me my symptoms, they're asking me, like, questions that. I could have answered if I was well. And also, I wrote that long thing after I got home because in the mm-hmm. hospital, I was too weak to do anything. Right. It, it, it's, you have a good perspective on that because it's very hard to ask people when they're sick to start repeating right. what happened to them. That's why I wrote a whole summary because so many people had asked about it. I couldn't possibly answer everybody on their own. So I wrote a whole thing when I felt strong enough. And it took quite a while until I felt strong enough. This virus is a beast. And it's right. it's unbelievable. So I did want to give you the opportunity and the platform, my platform, to really kind of break down what the last few weeks, months have been for you. And, uh, you know, sp- speak your speak your heart and speak your truth. You don't have to type everything out. You just say it. And, just say, and I'm yeah. here to listen. It's been seven weeks. Yeah. And it's just the last couple of days that I'm feeling close to being back to myself. I'm still getting mm-hmm. little things. It's a very, very tricky disease. But I got sick around March 11th. And a few days before that, you know, people already knew about the virus. And people were wary, but there were no warnings about social distancing. But people were already taking that into consideration. I was trying to kind of lead my life the way I had been, you know, if I'm not performing, I'm usually out covering the comedy scene, no. going to shows, supporting people, writing about it and all. So about four days before I got sick, I did my last podcast episode, the Comedy Matters TV podcast with Ron Bennington from the Bennington show on Sirius XM. He's a oh, radio man. legend and... We did it alone, just the two of us. Nobody else was allowed in because of the virus. Uh, Mm -hmm. The club was closed. They let me use it. And it was just my team and Ron. Mm -hmm. And I remember us wishing each other well, that we stayed safe and all. And uh, it was a great, it it was a really funny episode. It was really great. The next night, Jerry Seinfeld was at the 92nd Street Y with Barry Sonnenfeld talking about Barry's new book. I went to see that. The the auditorium was packed, like there was no virus at all. Everybody was sitting right next to each other. And then uh, the night before I got sick, I was supposed to go to two shows. Upright Citizens Brigade had a show early, and then National Lampoon 
who was fairly new in New York, was doing a new show. And they, they were kind enough to call me personally and invite me. And I decided I wanted to go. And I thought maybe I won't go to the UCB show because those are usually pretty crowded. Um, and it got canceled anyway. So it kind right. of made my choice easier for me. I didn't go. But I did go to the National Lampoon show. And I showed up. I got there too early. I got there about 45 minutes early. And I used that time to go food shopping. And I don't know what made me do that. You know, sometimes you're guided without knowing because I wouldn't have had an opportunity to go shopping after that because the next day was when I got sick. And I loaded up on food. There was a Trader Joe's nearby and I bought a ton of stuff. And again, there was no social distancing. Everybody was crammed together online. The lines were very long. Everybody was very close because people say to me, do you have any idea where you caught it? Mm. Who knows where you breathe in in the wrong place? That's all it no. takes is just to breathe in. You can just be walking past somebody that has it. Right. You don't even have to be sick. Right. It could just be a carrier. A carrier for it, which is right. why it's so important for people to wear masks, not to protect yourself, but to keep other people from getting it. So the next day I started sneezing and coughing, and I thought it was just a cold. By Friday the 13th, I started feeling it in my throat. When I get a cold, it goes right to my throat. So I always keep Z-Pak in the house because that knocks it out for me. I can't, right. I can't wait to call a doctor and wait for a prescription because by that time, my throat is really bad. So I keep right. it in the house. And luckily, I had two courses of it. It's usually a five-day dose. But I had two courses of it, and I wound up taking it for 10 days. And I really think that that contributed to saving my life because it kept my lungs clear. I had every symptom except shortness of breath. You know, when they finally mm -hmm. diagnosed me with double pneumonia, like I, I, had, I had everything. I went through 14 days of torture at home. I was sick for 14 days. And I kept thinking, this has to go away. Uh, tomorrow, I have to get better. I never heard of a virus that would go so long. You have a cold, it's a few days. You have a, vi a, a flu, five, six days. One day after the next, nauseous from morning to night, full body pain, headaches that didn't stop. Usually when you're nauseous, you can throw up and it goes away. With this, I couldn't throw up. It didn't let me throw up. I, I just stayed nauseous. I had night sweats where... The sheets were soaked, and usually when you have that, the fever leaves. But with this, you get the night sweats, and then the fever comes back again. It doesn't leave. And I had some stupid old-time thermometer, which was a nightmare. That, mercury. That, yeah, the old mercury ones that must have been right. used in Russia in 1810. Right. You have to shake it down. I didn't have a digital thermometer, which is embarrassing to admit. They gave me one in the hospital. <laughs> I it's like when a dentist gives you a toothbrush. You, you have experience with that. Exactly. So I couldn't, right. I, I couldn't tell what my temperature was, but I knew I had fever because I felt hot. Mm. I had full body chills where my body was shaking so bad that I couldn't hold the glass. And when that happened to me in the hospital, they covered me with four blankets and held it down just to try to get my fever down. Mm. So after 14 days, I couldn't take the pain anymore. I was such a mess. I was dragging myself from room to room. I didn't know what to do with myself. 
and I, I didn't want to go in the middle of the night. You know, I was afraid to go to the hospital because mm -hmm. I have a heart condition and that puts me in a high risk category. And mm -hmm. I was afraid to go to the emergency room because, you know, they always say there's a lot of germs in the emergency room. You can actually get sicker in the hospital. Right. So I was trying not to go. I called my doctor on Friday, March 20th. I called him just before the weekend. I was putting off calling him because it's a real scary thing to be that sick. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, you should probably go to the hospital, you know, if you get worse. And I don't know how I did it. I waited another six days. By the 26th, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I knew I'd have to go. And I woke up early that day. And, you know, I hadn't been dressed to go out of the house for like two weeks. Right. And I'm thinking, well, you have to get dressed to go to the hospital, but you got to wear stuff that's easy to take off because they got to take blood. They got to take vital signs. So not your regular sharp dress. Exactly. I had to wear, I had, so I had to start figuring out in my, in my confused, feverish mind, I'm thinking, what am I going to wear to the hospital? Yeah. How, so, how does your, how does your, how does your reputation as a sharp dressed man hold up when you're in the hospital exactly. with coronavirus? There's no, there's no vanity, man. You can't right. put right. Nobody looks good in the hospital. And no one expects you to. There's no one right. judging you. But wait till you. So not like no scarf for me, you know, like I, I put on first I dragged myself to the shower, hoping that that would make me feel better because often a shower makes you feel better. You know, mm -hmm. it didn't do anything. It just it was like an extra burden that I had to dry myself and dry my hair. It was horrible. So I put on track pants and sneakers and a T-shirt and a hoodie and a sport jacket that had pockets so I could take my, my medical ID and some cash and stuff. And I even put on cologne, Corey. Can you believe that? Like, <laughs> I can absolutely believe it, Jeff. Absolutely that's right. that's believe it. I was, man. I sprayed cologne on myself, and I'm like, where, who would I expect to meet? In the At least you didn't spray it in your mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the one thing I didn't do. <laughs> and then I realized, and I got to take a bag with me. You don't just go to the hospital with nothing. You got to bring stuff. And I couldn't think of what to bring. I was so confused and really scared. Yeah, I, I mean, straight. I'm really nervous because I, I have to call 911 within the next few minutes. I couldn't call them until I was packed because I didn't know how quickly they'd show up. Right. So, well, it's also it's also like... How quick? How quick? I, I mean, I don't have, I don't have experience with this, but how quick does, uh, like, an ambulance or emergency show up in New York City? Well, with, in this in this particular instance, they showed up pretty quick. Uh, right. I'll tell you what led up to it. Um, so I couldn't even choose a bag. I finally found a bag that I thought was the right size, and I put in some underwear and like a little flashlight and a dental instrument to clean my teeth. And I wasn't sure what else to do. I took some other stuff that didn't really make sense. And I could have brought my medication, which I didn't think to bring, my heart medication, because it took them a whole day to get it for me. And then I called 911. And it wasn't easy, because a lot of people were calling already. Mm -hmm. And they right. interviewed me. They asked me what my symptoms were. By that time, I was bleeding from my nose. And I told them all my symptoms. <laughs> And I, but I wasn't short of breath, but they sent an ambulance for me anyway, based on what I told them. And as I recall, they got here pretty quickly and two guys showed up outside my door. I told them I'm leaving my door unlocked 
in case anything happens and I can't get to the door. So they came with this huge stretcher and they were very impressed that I could get on it on my own because they said most people can't walk to the stretcher. They have to carry them. I'm like, no, I'm all right, man. I, I got up on the stretcher and they strapped me in. But this one guy, they were both very nice guys, but this one guy in particular, I wish I had his name and had to contact him. He took my hand and he said to me, don't worry, you're going to be okay. And he said, of all the sick people I've transported already, and I've seen a lot of them, you have the best physical presentation of anyone that I've seen. And well, that meant a lot to me, man. At any moment, especially, especially when you're ill, that's the, that, that's the first thing you want to hear. You want to be that you're going to be okay because actions and thoughts and words all lead up to like how you how you adapt. Well, it's so comforting. I can't even begin to describe it. A simple thing like that means so much. People don't realize what that means. Internally, you're in a panic. You know, I always try to stay calm and centered for my spiritual training. Mm -hmm. Always, you know, I try not to show. But inside, I'm really scared because I don't know what's happening to me, you know. And I now I got to go to the hospital. Who knows what's there? I, I'm scared hearing it. I'm scared so, for you hearing it. They, yeah, I mean it's crazy. So they strap me in the stretcher and they get me in the freight elevator. I live in a big building, and they wheel me through the lobby and I yell out to the doorman, tell the super that I'm going because the super had been very helpful to me. He tried to bring me some supplies that I needed a few days before I went to the hospital. Very kind, re really ve very special. And they put me in the ambulance and I asked to go to a hospital where my cardiologist was and they said, that's too far away. We're taking you to NYU Langone, which happened to be a great choice because I used to teach at NYU for 12 years. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that they were doing research on that drug Plaquenil that a lot of people say is very helpful in dealing with this. Because a lot of hospitals didn't even have that drug. And I didn't know that they were mixing it with Z-Pak and zinc. So I had already been on Z-Pak for 10 days. Right. So they get me to the emergency room. And again, I'm able to transfer my, myself without help to the hospital stretcher. Because once you get there, you got to move. And I'm like, no, I can do it. That's fine. And they were amazed that I could do that. So they check my temperature. I'm 102.4. And they put me in a cubicle. My favorite radio station. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. In a cubicle. I don't know if you've ever been in an emergency room, but it's yeah. it's kind of scary. There's these little cubicles. They're just separated by a curtain. Right. You know? And the, there's a woman next to me who's screaming, literally screaming with every exhalation. Every time she lets out a breath with a scream. And Does that amp the fear level up a bit? Yeah, sure, of course, because... Yeah. But I had to flip it in my mind because it was driving me crazy. And then I had to think to myself how scared and how sick she must be right. in order to be in Damn. that state. And so try not to judge. And then that, that famous perspective that you have where you're like, I'm grateful that I'm not that bad. Exactly. And, and exactly. look, I had to do that in my head. Right. I had to flip mm -hmm. my thought because right. it's very easy to get caught up in it and panic. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of people going back and forth, and it takes a while for people to come in and see you. By that time, you know how blood pressure, they say, is like 120 over 80 is normal? Right. My, 80, my 80 had dropped to 42. 
And it was really scary. My That's blood pressure was so low mm -hmm. that they couldn't get into a vein. It was really hard for them to start an IV. They had to go in through my hand and my wrist, and then they switched it into my hand, which is not comfortable, but there's nothing comfortable when you're in the hospital. And they started doing these swabs of my nose, which they apologized for. So you can imagine how uncomfortable it is if they're apologizing for it. They did yeah. it three times. They take this long Q-tip and stick it up your nose. It feels like they're touching your brain, man. And it was like, but I didn't even care. I was so sick. I was just begging. I said, please give me something to take away the nausea. I can't stand it anymore. I can't take it. They finally gave me a Zofran, which was a pill, but it didn't last too long. They wound up giving me something called Reglan, which they use on cancer patients who are, nor who are nauseous from the chemo. And then a few hours went by, it seems. They, they came and they did a uh, chest X-ray of me in the bed and an ultrasound of my lungs. And a pulmonary specialist came to see me and, and he told me that I had double pneumonia, COVID double pneumonia, which kind of it really shocked me. I knew I had to have the virus. Once you hear the words, it's a different story. Pneumonia is a scary thing, man. Right. You have fluid in your lungs. Mm -hmm. So they put the oxygen thing on me, which they kept on till the next day. And they were actually debating whether to send me home or not. And again, I begged them. I said, please, I can't do this alone. Um, I live by myself. My kids are far away. I don't have anybody. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I can't stand it anymore. And they wound up keeping me. They couple hours later, it seems. I can't judge how many hours went by, but sometime that afternoon, they said, we have a room for you. And they took me to this room. It was such a beautiful room, a huge room. I was in isolation just by myself. I found out afterwards it was a room that they used for cancer patients. Mm -hmm. But they moved all the cancer patients to a different area, and they set up a COVID wing. Mm -hmm. And because they needed rooms where you could isolate people. And the room was very big and it had a, a, a like huge picturesque windows with a view of the East River with boats going by. And one whole wall had a television that took up the whole wall. Wow. And you had to use that TV to order food, to change the lighting or the shades or whatever. And uh, nobody knew how to work it. We figured it out, but nobody knew how to work it because they were taking nurses from other floors because they were so overrun right. And they were taking people from other parts of the hospital to fill in. Right. Everybody, I can't tell you how kind everybody was on the staff. Everybody was amazing. There were nurses that took the time to hold my hand and tell me that I'd be okay. They, the first thing they did, they took off my sneakers and my socks and they gave me a hospital robe to put on. And again, they were amazed that I could stand up and put it on. Um, I had already missed lunch. So they went out of their way to get me a meal so I could eat because I was feeling so sick and I didn't know from being empty, you know, at least I had somewhat of an appetite. But when the food came, I couldn't eat it for hours. I just looked at it. It was like a crazy thing. Was that, I was that, that, that nausea was that, that you were talking about? Yeah, but also weakness and the whole thing is surreal. Like you can't believe all of a sudden you're in the hospital. It's right. a very strange thing. And so, actually, you know, they always say hospital food is horrible. The hospital food was, was great. It was amazing. They would right. accept me salmon and, 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 and potatoes and 
like real full meals that lemon ices yeah, like, and apples and like like craft services like yeah, craft services pretty amazing and i had a big private bathroom and again so on the second day is when they started me on the plaquenil and the zinc that hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. um, they gave me a double dose in the morning and a double dose in the evening and they took out my oxygen to see how i would do on my own and i was 95 to 96% breathing on my own, which they said was amazing. Right. So they took the oxygen out of my nose and they just started nursing me back to health. And on the second day, they told me on the next day, they would probably have to move me. And I'm like, why would you have to move me? I'm just getting comfortable here, you know, cause it's like scary every time they're going to take you someplace else. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's uncertainty. It's just, you're just staring right into the face of uncertainty. Exactly. So I was just getting comfortable and they're like, well, we need this room for sicker people and we need you to have physical therapy and you can't get it here. We need to send you to a different part of the hospital. So I couldn't argue. The next day they come for me. By the way, they were covering me with ice packs to bring down my fever. They put ice packs on my head. They put ice packs under my arms, which you would think would be uncomfortable, ice packs under your arms. It wasn't at all. It felt amazing. It was like a spa. Yeah, and they put ice packs on my legs. And when they brought my temperature down to 98, it brought tears to my eyes. I couldn't believe it. I started feeling somewhat normal when the nausea was gone and the pounding in my head was gone. It was an amazing feeling. So the next day... They call transport and they wheel me out. I had to transfer beds again. They couldn't take my bed. I had to get onto this other bed. And they took me to a different part of the hospital. And that was kind of a nightmare because they put me in a room with three other very sick men, all of them sick with the COVID virus. And that was horrible. I had never shared a room with people before. Not that I spent a lot of time in hospitals, but when I had the heart attack, I was by myself for most of the time. They brought in someone else, but it was a much bigger room. Right. It didn't feel like there was an imposition. But with this, it was horrible. The man in the bed next to me was a very old Chinese man who couldn't speak English, and he was choking on his saliva. I thought he was dying. I, I was so scared. That's I called... So I called I called the nurse on his behalf. Plus, he was coughing constantly. And he's right next to me. And I'm thinking, I'm only here two days already. I'm probably very susceptible. I was really nervous that I'd get even sicker. But they could, there was no place to put me. Every room was taken. And then across from me was a guy who couldn't stop throwing up constantly. And then in the other bed was this man who... Uh, He had to be rushed to be put on a ventilator. His oxygen suddenly dropped from 90 to 83, which they say is very common with this virus. You could be okay one minute and all of a sudden you go like that. So they had to send in a team, which is very upsetting. You're seeing them like racing in to save this guy and rushing him down to ICU to be put on a ventilator. And we're all sharing one small bathroom. Which was horrible. It's such a such a like a drastic change from what you had just had. Well, and yeah, in the other room, I had this big thing, a big private bathroom with a shower and just a sink, and just nice. 
Mm -hmm. It's like a hotel, you know? And so here, it was terrible. So when they told me here that they were going to try to send me home the next day, at first I was averse to the idea because I'm thinking to myself, I'm too sick to go home. But after laying in these circumstances, I'm like, yeah, I can't wait to go home. I'm yeah, you'd rather be alone than be surrounded by misery. By misery. It was horrible to be there with three of the other very sick men. And, um, you know, they were, the nurses would come by. You couldn't see anybody because everyone was so heavily masked. You know, shields. And once in a while, they'd write their name on their shield, but you can't really recognize anybody. They were very attentive. Let's say that. They were very kind. Sometimes, though, it would take hours for somebody to come if you needed a nurse because they were that busy. You press a button, somebody would answer you on an intercom, what do you need? Because you couldn't tell them once they were in the room. They had to bring it because once they left, they couldn't come back. So they told me they wanted to discharge me the next day by noon. And by two o'clock, when they had brought me lunch, I realized I wasn't going home by noon. So I asked this doctor, I said, am I going home? And he said, I signed the papers myself early this morning, but they're so busy that it's taking a long time to get discharged. So finally, at 3.25, an ambulance crew came and they said, we're here to pick you up by 3.30. And I got dressed faster than I've ever gotten dressed in my life. Yeah. I, you know what? I wanted to add, my first day, I, they were so overrun, I didn't have a pillow for my bed. They, they took like a rough blanket and they rolled it up to be used as a pillow. And it slipped down and it caused the worst rash. They actually took pictures of my back. They couldn't believe what a rash I had. They weren't sure if it was from medication or if it was from this pillow, this so-called pillow. But when they, the second day I got pillows, and I brought my pillow to the new room, and they actually had pillows there. So I wound up with three pillows, which is so I could elevate my feet because my feet were swelling too. That was another crazy thing. Right. So anyway, the ambulance comes and they strap me in, and I don't know why they did this. They strapped my arms down so I couldn't move. Usually they let you keep your arms free in case you have to adjust your glasses or your mask or something. They strapped my arms down. They wrapped me in sheets like a mummy. It was crazy. I said, just unwrap my face so they don't think I passed away, you know? It was like mm -hmm. scary. They put two masks on me, a mask with a shield and another mask under it. And they drove me home and there was no traffic so we got home pretty quickly. And they took me up to my apartment and they carried my bags in for me. By that time I had two bags because the hospital gave me a bag of stuff also. And they put my clothes in that, you know, and when they came into my place and they saw all the pictures of the comedians, they actually wound up hanging out for about 20 minutes, <laughs> asking me questions about all the different comedians, you know, until yeah. I was too tired to talk anymore because I was exhausted. I put right. those two bags down and those two bags stayed in that place for the next three weeks, maybe more. I couldn't put things away. I have like PTSD. Yeah. I, I couldn't even look at the stuff. I just left it and walked around it. Everything, my place was just a mess for weeks. I just couldn't touch anything. I, I sleeping on the other side of my bed because I had to 
I did a laundry. It was so huge. I had to disinfect all the clothes that I had been wearing while I was sick, plus the bedding. My super had given me a can of Lysol, so I sprayed everything. Then I had to wash it in like the hottest water. It's the only time I left my apartment was to go to the laundry this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And I two masks and gloves. My building's very strict. Everybody's wearing masks and gloves. The doormen are masked. Their concierge where, uh, place where they sit is roped off with caution tape. You can't get near it, about six feet away. So everybody around here is really taking a lot of precautions. And so since I got home, I developed pleurisy, which they said is kind of common with pneumonia, where every time I took a breath, I got a sharp pain in my back and my shoulder. But I went back on z and that seemed to get rid of that. And it's been a very tricky recovery. It's been seven weeks. And just yesterday, or the day before, I started feeling well enough to do podcasts. I went on Sirius XM with Ron Bennington and I did the Comedy Cellar podcast. And when I talk for about an hour, I cough a lot afterwards. I seem to be okay while I'm doing it, but I'm afraid to go out of the house, to be honest with you. I've been on my terrace a couple of times. Um, it's very nerve wracking. Right. Because nobody can tell you yet whether you can get reinfected. The hospital called me to check on my condition. And I asked them, I said, you know, can I assume that I have some kind of immunity or do I have a chance of being reinfected? And they said, to tell you the truth, we don't know. It's too soon. There hasn't been enough research. So I've had a, a neighbor who is an angel who's been shopping for me for weeks. Every few days, she asks me what I need and she goes to the store and buys it for me. Wow. Which is amazing. And that, the kindness of people has been overwhelming. The comedy community came out in force to support me. I've got hundreds and hundreds of messages. They made a video for me, a get well funny yeah. video. I, I watched it. Yeah. I saw comedian yeah. mm-hmm. Telling stories about their interactions with me, you know, yeah. which was amazing. And I got messages from people like Nick Kroll and John Mullaney and Bill Burr and Jim Norton and Bert Kreischer, and Gad Elmaleh called me from Paris. Yeah. Send me love and to wish me well, you know, and I'm telling you, it brought tears to my eyes many times to think that you've touched so many people that they think of you. People are so busy. It's amazing that they'll take the time to write to you, even something so simple. It really helps when you're that sick. I'm a very strong believer in the power of prayer and the power of thought. When so many people are focusing their energy on one particular thing, I truly think that there's a power there. And I, I really think that that helped me to get better. The support of not only my family and friends, but the comedy community in general was amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. And that's my story. <laughs> it's a long story. Yeah, I, I, I figured I'd save my questions till the end. Please, uh, people do have questions. Because, um, uh, dude, I, I do. Uh, here's a stupid question. Uh, 
Did the super bring you any um, like greens and vegetables and stuff? The super brought me Dramamine. He brought me something I had never drank before, which I'm actually drinking now. Gatorade. Leave <laughs> something well, simple. I never drank Gatorade. He said to me, this will replenish your fluids. And he brought me a bunch of stuff that I don't remember. I remember asking for Dramamine because I was hoping that that would take away the nausea. But the nausea, it, yeah. Didn't it didn't work? Well, the reason I'm asking that is only so I can make a stupid joke because super supers are so famous for the salad. Have you heard of super salad? No, I haven't. No. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's so, oh, soup or oh, S O U P. Okay, I get it. Super salad. <laughs> what was interesting to me is see, I live in a very big building, a 35 story building. Wow, the super does not give his cell phone to everybody, right. But he gave it to me. And he said, if you ever need me, let me know. And I waited for many days. I didn't want to bother him. But when I was a couple of days before I went to the hospital, I was really so sick, I couldn't help but call him. And I apologized. And he goes, no, no, please don't apologize. He's just a great guy. Yeah. Said, what can I get you? He's a very super guy. He's a, he's super, a, super, he's a super dupe for super. And, and so he brought me a whole thing of Gatorade, which I really had never drank, and it, it, was, it was great. And uh, a whole bunch of other supplies that I don't remember, but I remember that he brought me Dramamine also. Well, and, and, oh, and he gave me Lysol, the Lysol spray, mm -hmm. because he said uh, that I could use that on my bedding. You know, it was just very nice of him to go out of his way. And uh, a lot of people have been so helpful. I can't tell you how many people have said, if you need anything, let me know. They don't even live near me. I would never think of asking somebody. It's like, it's like you saying, you know, I'm like, yeah, Corey, come in from Philly to drop off a, a pie for me. <laughs> I would never ask anybody. I feel bad that this woman is doing this for me, and she lives in my building. Right. But she's just a very kind person. Right. Well, sometimes, sometimes it's tough for us to to accept people's generosity and sometimes it's it's hard for us to uh, it's hard for us to 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 ask for help it's hard for people i mean it's just sometimes in our nature yeah it's very hard for me it's a common thing look i'm used to giving i'm fortunate i've been able to give to things all my life but i'm not great at receiving it was like embarrassing to me right and she wasn't taking money and i was like you know, it just felt weird. Then I thought of all the women I've taken out to dinner all those years who never said, <laughs> gee, you're spending so much money on me. I feel bad. No one ever said that. And I had to teach myself that it's okay to receive. If people, there are sometimes that people really want to give you something. Mm -hmm. And the best thing that you could do is to just say thank you. Don't fight. Just to just to understand that you're worthy of receiving something, you know, and that that's a hard concept to grasp sometimes, you know, when someone is being so kind, there's a tendency to think, what can I do for them in return? But mm -hmm. a lot of times they don't expect anything. Right. They just want to do something. In this, in this crisis, people, are, they just want to help somebody, you know? It's like, that's why, it, I don't know how it is in Philly, Every night at seven o'clock, people are cheering out their windows, banging pots and pans. 
Is that a national thing? Are they doing uh, all over? I only see it on commercials. I haven't seen it in my neighborhood, but uh, in New maybe York it City, happens. You know, New York City is the epicenter of this disease. Right. Mm-hmm. There's more people sick here than anybody, than uh, than any place. So every night at seven o'clock, it's become a tradition for weeks already. People open their windows and they're screaming and applauding and yelling and police put on their sirens that people honk their horns. There's not many cars on the street. The streets are basically empty, but people are banging pots and pans. It goes on for a few minutes and it's a very special thing to show you gratitude that way. These people are putting their lives on the line and possibly bringing this illness home to their families and they're mm-hmm. there saving lives, you know. I, I, you know, I made a monetary donation when I came home. I called the hospital and I asked them if there was a way that I could do that because there's a lot of scams too. Anytime something is happening, people are contacting you to make donations to different things. But I wanted to make it specifically to NYU Langone. So I called them and they have a website and I wrote my experience on there as a thank you to them for nursing me back to health. And somebody from the hospital contacted me and they asked if they could interview me for their fundraising effort, which I did yesterday. Tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, where people can, it's a special day for giving to charities. And I want to try and help them as much as I can because I'm so grateful that I came through this. You know, there's no guarantees what happens to you once you're in the hospital. Right. And Look, so man. I mean, the 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 hearing this hearing this from you gives me a whole new perspective, and I hope anyone who hears it from you through through my resource gets a whole new perspective from it. So uh, I, it sounded like a damn war zone. It sounded like uh, sound like something out of like Black Mirror. Mix that with like fury or some sort of wartime. Yeah, you can't Epic. picture it, but that's what the doctors right. and nurses are comparing it to, that it's like a wartime thing. Yeah. And I, I feel like I have PTSD, and I did a podcast with a physician from Colorado who also said that he feels like he has PTSD. There's but, absolutely no way you can't have PTSD. Like, you do. That's it. Like, there's no, now I feel like I might. You absolutely do. That's think, traumatic. Yeah, I think it affects people going through such a trauma. Right. You don't know what's going to happen to you. There's so much up in the air. You just really don't know what your condition is and what's going to happen and how sick you can get. And, and you know, if the medication's going to work. When they started me on that Plaquenil, I started feeling better. You know, now there's people saying that that thing doesn't work. It seemed to work for me. You know, that's what they gave me. They gave me Plaquenil and zinc, and they gave me some to take home to take for another three days. And I was so glad to have it. And I don't care if it's a placebo effect or whatever, but I was very, very sick and I feel better. Uh-huh. So, you know, I to me, I think it works. Who knows, you know? Well, I think that there's certain, and I, not to take away from anybody else who's who's suffering at all, but I think that there's a certain, there's a certain, uh, like mindset. Mindset. Yeah. I was There's gonna... a certain mindset that, as as far as, as far as, um, what your attitude has, your how your attitude will affect the outcome of your 
of your situation, no matter what your situation is. Uh, but your mindset, from what I can tell, all that every time I've ever talked to you, has always been like, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be inside of joy, and the joy is going to help. You know, you're gonna enjoy life, and that's gonna help you through any struggles that you have. It's so interesting how you understand me, Corey. Because we have a lot of similarities. Because you're there. In order to understand that, you have to be that kind of person. I try to live in a very positive framework. You know, my last book that became a bestseller on Amazon is about happiness and you know about changing your mind, literally learning how to change your thoughts. You know, it's called healing your heart by changing your mind: a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. Right. So the whole time I'm there, I'm trying to work on my thought process. It's the one, the one with the, the dog doing the yoga on the cover, right? Yes. You can see it. Yeah. The dog in lotus position. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm working the whole time. You know, you have to practice what you preach. You can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk. Mm -hmm. and it's easy to do when everything is going great. It's important to do it when things feel like they're not going so well. So... It's a constant effort. I have to work on my mind and my thoughts to try to stay positive because it's very easy to go into a negative space. Yeah. So I'm joking all the time and I'm joking with the nurses and, you know, every once in a while one would stop for a moment and talk to me about the insanity that was going on. And we would share something real like, hey, this is like a science fiction movie, right? Except that it's real, you know? They would just stop. They would connect with me on a personal basis. And I really appreciated that. We only got to see doctors like once a day. They'd come in at the end of the day because there were so many patients. They were monitoring us remotely because we're all hooked up to machines. And the machines, I guess, go to a central station where the doctors would sit and they would review your vital signs and how you were doing. So they'd come in at the end of the day and kind of summarize what your condition was, you know. Um, but the whole thing was incredibly stressful. And I just had to try and stay in my positive frame of mind, telling myself that it's going to be okay, that this is just going to be another weird experience. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is definitely a part of history, but it's also part of your story. It's a part of your life lessons now that you have to hold with you, to, to, to pass this message on, not only to the people that, that are going to hear it, but your loved ones, and change perspective on anyone's, anyone's doubt of it, or anyone's like brushing it off like it's not a big deal. And also, this will help you, hopefully, I, I've, been, I've been trying to say throughout this whole thing that hopefully everyone will appreciate everything else way more now when it comes to uh, like going out to shows, maybe people will come out. But I mean, there's going to be some reluctancy. There's going to be some hesitation. But uh, like going out to eat and going out, like when we can, when we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, we will be as as optimistic. We won't be as 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 like, oh, I hate Sheila from work. Ugh. 
But it's like, oh yeah, well now you can you can hate Sheila to her face if you want. You know what though? In a crazy way, it's bringing the world together for the people mm-hmm. lucky enough to get through this. People, I've never seen like a community like I, I said. I hate to keep saying it brought tears to my eyes, but when I see people cheering in the street, it's very mm-hmm. emotional. Yeah, you see a whole community doing something together like that. That's never been any part of my existence. This hasn't happened for a hundred years. In 1918, they had the pandemic. So the Spanish flu. Yeah. So it's like seeing seeing how people are responding and pulling together in many ways has been very heartwarming. You know, what's it been like in Philly, where you are? Every I, I don't I don't see much change. I mean. Really? Like my my life was pretty my life was pretty like all I I've been doing like going to sets and stuff for for the last year or so so I mean I just can't go to sets like I'm, that's all my work that I've been doing so um, no but I mean are, are a lot of people getting sick in Philadelphia I I haven't noticed really? I that's I so interesting that's so interesting because you know sometimes I was just thinking about this the other day sometimes people miss something that's on the news. They don't read the paper or they don't watch TV. But I would venture to say that there's nobody in the world who doesn't know that there's a virus. Right. That a lot of people, a lot of people are not taking it seriously. There's people in New York that have been congregating. Yesterday was 75 degrees and they took pictures of a lot of people in the park. A lot of young people were out sitting right next to each other. They don't realize the danger. I don't think they realize the mortality that's involved. And again, not only for them, the governor was saying it, it's very selfish. It's not just for yourself. It's for you your family, yeah. You can make other people sick. You can't visit your grandparents or your parents. There's a chance that you could kill them. You know you know how a person would feel if they did that? It's, it's a nightmare, I'm sure it's happened already. People have brought it home to their families. So it's a very, very serious virus. It's not something to be trifled with, you know. Um, I don't know how to make it any clearer. I, I just consider myself very lucky. I'm really grateful that I was able to make it through that. It was a horrible experience. And again, it's a sunny day, but I have no desire to go out in the street. <laughs> I'm not looking to go anywhere. I'm well, I want to stay home for another week or so until I feel really strong and back to myself. You know. Right. Like, I can feel fine for most of the day. Last, yesterday, I felt great all day. But last night, I didn't feel so good again. And that's what it does to you. It's, like, very tricky. I, there could be, like, little bits of the virus that are still alive inside me. So it's going to... you before. So I don't know, you know. Those experiences that you had are now going to uh, foster some paranoia for from now until... Who knows, you know? Well, you know what? The comedy club owners asked me on the podcast that we did, what would it take for you to come back to the clubs? They said, what if we said like June 1st, everything's going to reopen? And I was like, well, it's going to depend on the statistics around May 25th or May 27th. I have to see. I'm not running to sit in groups of people again. I think when when things reopen, they're probably going to have to reopen it a different capacity. Yeah. And it has to space the tables apart in restaurants and stuff. I don't think a lot of people are going to be wanting to sit right next to each other. 
because doctors have said that there's definitely going to be a second wave of this, that that's how viruses go. It's not if, it's when. That when you have a virus like this, it's going to quiet down, and then you're going to get a second wave. And so, again, nobody knows if you can get reinfected. That's a scary thought to me, man. Yeah. That... I don't know. I, I feel safer being in the house. Right. Yeah, I mean... And it's that's... a good thing that it's it's a good thing that we're not right in the middle of the winter again. Right. So in some ways, people might think that it would be better to be quarantined when it's so cold out because you don't want to go out anyway. But I don't know. It makes it easier when I see a sunny day. If I look out the window and see sun sunshine, it, it puts you in a better mood as opposed to those dark, gray, cold, rainy days in the winter when you feel depressed anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, the. I think I'm thinking that I had a little bit of something. Like, I think it just came in and went out. I'm not comparing at all what happened. But like when you said, like, you had soaked your, your bed sheets. Yeah. I did that in February. Like, I was in my bed for like three days straight and I couldn't move. Well, and uh, you might have had a very mild case of it, either that or you peed in the bed. That's what I thought. That's okay. what I thought. No, I, if you, no, but there are some people, there are different strains of this thing, too. Mm -hmm. And some people are getting mild symptoms, mm -hmm. getting over it in a few days. So that might have been it. And I don't know what the big deal is with the testing. So what would it mean? So if you went to be tested now and they said you were negative, how would that really change your life? I don't know right. what you would do or wouldn't do. I don't know what the big thing, why they, they're insisting. You know, there, there are people who have had the thing who still test positive, who don't test negative. And they said, well, that's because some of the dead virus is still in the body. But I don't really understand what you're supposed to do since there's no cure for it. What's the difference if they tell you that you're positive? I think everyone should assume that they've been exposed to it. You should lead your life thinking that you've been exposed to it so that you're protecting yourself and other people around you. That's probably a good way to approach the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you may have had a mild case of it and just got away lucky. The, I, I sleep in bed with my girlfriend, so I had to wake her up and I was like, honey, wake up. I need, I need to change the sheets. I may have peed the bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, there's that much sweat. But so is she has she been okay? She's healthy. She's fine. Yeah, she's totally fine. That's great. That's great. Like um my my cousin was sick and my sister was sick. And and then I was sick and then all three of us were fine. But had you been seeing each other? Yeah, yeah, we we got a we got a um we rented a like a cabin in the Poconos. Oh, nice. And uh, we were all together for that, and all three of us were sick, and then we just got over it. Well, there's a good chance, you know, look, maybe you have good genes, and maybe you just got the weakened strain of the virus, which is a blessing, you know, an absolute yeah. blessing. Everybody seems to get it to a different degree. Right. Some of the people who passed away seem to only be sick for a very short time. You know, so it's a really, really scary thing, man. Uh, I want to I say it again, just so it's not understated, how grateful I am that you made it through this. Thank how you. happy I am that you made it through this. 
how happy I am that you were able to write me right back just to just to say something. So I knew that you were, you know, alive and well, not well, but alive. No, I appreciate that. I really do. Like I said, it means a lot when people people are busy, whatever. When someone takes the time to inquire about your well-being, it's a very special thing. And mm -hmm. I do that a lot. You know, when I read about people on Facebook, there's so much sad news on Facebook. You know, and I try to send my condolences and my best wishes and prayers for healing whenever I can, because I learned that it really does make a difference. Yeah, I mean, something... It's very easy to feel lonely out there, you know? Something I said earlier, um, I think I said it last year when we talked, too. When I'm like, I was talking about how precious of a, of a currency effort is. Effort is huge. If you just take that two seconds to, to say, you know, give somebody maybe a compliment that you see or, you know, just write a super, a super quick text message, that's, that's a huge currency. So I say... When it comes to my podcast, I'm going to, the fact that somebody maybe listened to the whole episode and maybe it was maybe it was two hours long, maybe it was three hours long, and you gave me that much of your effort and your attention, you really you really paid me something that that I I I'm begging for. You know, us 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 comedians, we have this we have this like look at me whole. We have this validation that we seek. There's a need that we have, it's right? need but there's also like you said about appreciating that right like, even when people get my book like if i do a book sale and people come and buy my book and i sign it for them you know that i write something different in everybody's book right i don't just sign my name i write something personal because i think it's an honor when someone takes the time to buy your book or to indulge themselves in your creativity to do anything like that. It's something very special about it. And people have said to me, well, that's really amazing that you would take the time to do that. It, it's the only thing that, it's the only way that I would do it. I can't imagine that anyone has ever or would ever accuse you of being anything but all the way genuine. It's very nice. It's very I, nice you to say. I, I hope that comes across that way. Right. It does. It very much does. You, you, you never, you never seem like you're, like you're sycophantic, glad-handed. It's all for the purpose of I'm maybe I'm making a difference on this person who's talking to me or listening to me or reading what I wrote, but I'm for sure not going to just go, Jeffrey Gorian, get out of here. <laughs> right? Like, it's somebody it's, did that to me, a well-known person, and I was so offended. And I said to him, "That's what he just wrote his name." I went to his book signing at the Friars Club years ago, and we've been friends for many years. I'm not going to say who it is. And he just signed his name in my book. I'm like, "Are you kidding? That's what you're gonna?" And he took it back and he wrote to my best friend, something like that. He wrote like something obnoxious but on purpose. Right. Laughingly wrote that. Because I said, how can you just sign your name? You think that's meaningful? How can well, you do I, that, you know? I've been thinking about this a lot, right? right. I, I just got new downstairs neighbors like two months ago or something. And they're always yelling at each other, like mm -hmm. ridiculously loud yelling at each other. And they have like kids and they're yelling at the kids. And I'm always thinking like every one of these shouting exchanges are memories that are getting made. Uh, you're, 
you don't have to do that to the kids. Exactly. <laughs> like, kids remember that. It's hard for kids to grow up in a household where their parents are fighting. My so, parents hardly ever argued, but when they did, it stayed with me as a young kid. Right. It's going to stay. It's going to stay. Very upsetting, yeah. So, I mean, I, that's why I, I think about the the impact of the legacy or the le impact of the the message or the intention because that that and you know i know it's none of my business and i'm not going to say anything like cuz i don't want to make somebody upset for sure but it's like um you know my i have i have roommates my roommate was my roommate and his brother were arguing on the phone and I was like, you realize that people are like dropping dead, like during this, and like the last memory you're going to have with them is you guys screaming at each other. Like that's not just this world is too crazy and this life is too short to waste time fighting about Facebook posts. Yeah, it's important to have a bigger perspective than yourself. Most people will never get that. Everybody leads their life on a different level. You have to work hard to raise your level of consciousness. Most people are leading their lives in a very superficial way. Not to be judgmental, but it's just the truth that a lot of people don't see those kind of levels like you say. It's important to, to try and step out of that self-centeredness that we all have. You know, really, who else's life can you think about but your own? But we tend to be very self-centered. And especially in the entertainment business, it's all about ego. And but I think... It's the spiritual also, world is the exact opposite. The, the spiritual world, the goal is to detach from ego. So it's very hard to create a balance when you're in the entertainment world because, like I always say, if you go in to buy a shirt, the guy just gives you the shirt. He doesn't give you a shirt and a picture of himself <laughs> and say, this is who I am and this is what I do. But in, in the entertainment business, you're always put in the position of having to tell people what you're doing, what you're working on, who you are, what you, you know, it's, it's all ego related. So it's yeah. very easy to get caught up in that. That's why so many big stars are insane. Well, I think it's a good amount of like, not, not caring about yourself either. Like, it's like, it's, if I, if I, if I love me, I love who I am in the public eye and not just the public eye. And I think that's what some people like don't love themselves first. And that's, uh, dude, you spend more time with you than you spend with any of you, uh, with anybody. Mm -hmm. So when, when you are going through all that, the only person there for you fully was you. That's it. So, that's what I was saying. It can, it can feel very lonely at times. You're all you have to depend on. It's hard enough. You know, a lot of people live alone. And it's nice when you can have people around you. But in a situation like this, no one's allowed to visit you. You must be isolated. You know, so you're going through something very difficult all by yourself. And you have to draw on your inner strength in order to be able to do that. And, you know, you have to now have that, perspective. Yeah. Again, what are we gonna now, that, now that you're starting to feel a little bit better, uh, you can do what I think I've been uh, <laughs> hoping everyone's doing is teach yourself a new thing, get to those things you didn't think you could, had the time for. Oh, for sure. I've been studying Chinese. 
I, I started playing these old CDs that I have that I, I signed up for a long time ago. I'm working on a new book. I have about 200 pages written of that book. And I've only been able to do that in the last few days because I had been too sick before. I couldn't even sit at the computer. But yeah, I want to use the time creatively, you know, to learn things. Um, I'm working on a lot of stuff, you know. I, at some point, we're going to go back on stage. It's going to be really weird. Yeah. You know, having not been on stage for a couple of months is strange. You might have a new chunk. You might have a new chunk all about it. Yeah, I don't usually talk about what I go through, but I wouldn't be surprised. When I had the heart attack, I did a thing about that. It's a long story, and I did it a couple of times. But, you know, most sets are only 10 minutes, so you can't take it up with a seven-minute story because you're investing a lot in that. If the audience doesn't buy it for whatever reason, you're in trouble. Right. I come from a school where you just have to keep making them laugh. One joke, punch, 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 right. like that. Storytelling is a whole different art. But I, yeah. I, I wind up with something from it. I mean, if if it's just a just a quick set of punch, and you move like if you you know do something the quick find something funny in it, which I think you can, you I'll can polish that thing off and show it. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm working on this new book uh, called Fighting the Fear, and it's about how I make myself do everything that I find uncomfortable. You know. In October, I went to Japan by myself. That was pretty crazy. And it was a 14-hour flight, and I had always wanted to go for some reason. And I was lost on a daily basis, which is my biggest fear is getting lost in places. And the people do not speak English. They tell you they do, but they don't. I was talking to one guy who was sure that he spoke English, and I didn't understand one word he said. And I felt bad. I don't want to tell him. I just kept saying, I don't hear you. But, uh, but I did it. You know, I went to Europe by myself. I challenged myself constantly to do things that make me nervous. Because if the rest of the world can do it, I feel like I need to be able to do it. And I'm not talking about jumping out of a plane, like skydiving or something that's dangerous. I'm talking about things that, that people generally do that make me feel uncomfortable to do it. So it's a challenge to me, you know? And are are I, you familiar? Okay, well, am I familiar with what? With Chris Cornell? No. Oh, he's a, From he's a, a rock singer. Yeah, he's what, a rock singer, right? Yeah, he was, he was the lead singer of Soundgarden and Audio Slave. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, he, he was one of my favorites, one of my favorites, but uh, he, he's, he's, um, him and him and him and the lead singer of Lincoln Park were like best friends, and they both like killed themselves one year apart from each other. But um, you just made me think of him. I he had a he has a song called "It Doesn't uh, Doesn't Remind Me," and in the beginning of it he says, "I walk the streets of Japan till I get lost because it doesn't remind me of anything." That's interesting, and it's very easy to walk the streets of Japan until you get lost. But you know, too many people let fear hold them back from accomplishing their dreams. And that's why I'm working on this book, because everybody has things that they'd like to do, but they, a lot of people never seem to get around to doing them. And uh, so I think it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's a good book to take off from where my last book left off. Right. Well, it, it's, it's that, that thing of like, 
when you said doing those things that make you uncomfortable, and it made me think of like how often staying comfortable will keep you just where you are, and you're yeah, gonna progress. You'll never progress. You'll just stay where you are, but you'll be dealing with a lot of regret. Fear, fear is a bully. And it doesn't want you to accomplish anything. It wants you to stay in bed with the covers over your head. And um, it's very important that you like F you to the bully and that you stand up to it. That's what kept me off stage for so many years. I didn't have the courage to perform because I had already been writing for a lot of big stars and people expected me to be funny right away. I felt a lot of pressure. And also because, I don't know if you remember, I used to stutter very badly. A lot of my book is about is about that. And I want to mention that before we wrap up, because I'm starting to get a little bit hoarse. Okay, okay. But, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just... I wanted to mention my, my book on happiness, because I know people are going to listen to this show. And I, I always like, like, my goal has always been to put positive energy out to the universe and to inspire people. And that's the goal of my comedy and basically with everything that I do. And so I developed a cure for stuttering because I stuttered very badly. And I realized that there was really nothing wrong with me because I didn't stutter when I was by myself. I only stuttered when I was trying to talk to somebody else, which told me that you can't have a disability based on your location. Right? If a man has a limp, he limps in every room of his house. He can't go into a room and close the door and walk perfectly. Because uh, that's, that's a great quote. That's a good, that's a great idea. A great thought process. Well, it's a true disability. Mm -hmm. If I could go into a room and not stutter by talking to myself, then it means I have the capability to speak fluently, that there's really nothing wrong with me. And I worked on myself for years to train my mind to, to convince my subconscious mind that there was no longer any need for me to stutter. Mm -hmm. And as an avocation, I work with stutterers. But it's a much bigger story. The book is not just about stuttering. It's about overcoming obstacles in your life by changing the way you think because we develop thoughts that are very self-limiting. Mm -hmm. And I developed a thought that told me I needed to have a disability, so I stuttered. And I had to change that thought. It's not easy to do, but it's definitely doable. And that's what this book is about. And I got great reviews from psychiatrists and psychologists people in recovery centers, um, because it's very pertinent to people who are addicted to different substances. They tend to be very sensitive. They tend to be overwhelmed by their feelings. And they have thoughts that plague them, usually thoughts from childhood. That's what I call the heart wounds, the pains that we accumulate growing up. And they affect every decision we make. They affect our self-esteem and our self-confidence. So it's important to understand that you can change those things with the power of your mind. And that's yeah. been my goal. N there's pattern, there's negative patterns that you have to let, you have to let them, let them like stuff like kind of flow off you sometimes when, you, when, cause other people will limit you if you let them. Well, that's what a lot of the heart wounds are about. There are, mm -hmm. things, there are things that people sent to you during the course of your life that hurt your feelings. Maybe they broke a promise to you. They said something that hurt you in some way and it stays lodged inside of you. Mm. And I call them heart wounds. They stay in your heart chakra. 
and you need to release them in order to be able to achieve the goals in your life that you want to achieve. I think that um, that a lot of that is why I I I will will quote the Mitch Hedberg bit. I think I've done this. I've told you this before. Uh, where like Mitch Hedberg, yeah. Mitch Mitch Hedberg did the thing. Was like, oh, you can you can play tennis your whole life and get as good, you know, get as good as you possibly can get, and like study tennis and really cr- care about tennis, but you're never going to be as good as the wall. <laughs> Yes. So, I say that a lot when it comes to dealing with dealing with the negativity or dealing with the baggage that you carry, dealing dealing with uh, the the heart wounds that you're talking about, and or you know the, that that thing that you become a victim to, like convincing yourself that you have a disability just to to when be you, your security. When, yeah, when you really don't, right. to hold yourself back in some way, it has to do with self sabotage. All kinds of things, but can you hear my voice is getting? Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, uh, I wanna wrap it up here if I can. Um, I'm enjoying just a, this a lot, but I have to because right. I don't want to lose my voice. So the way I normally wrap it up, as I always say, uh, uh, just pretend the show's yours now. Um, hypothetically, I've gifted the show to you. I think I did this with you last year uh, in a very very brief jerry springer's final thought sort of way how would you wrap up the the message that we need to receive from this first episode of your podcast evolving with jeffrey gorian well in terms of i mean most of our talk was about the virus so take it take the virus seriously take the precautions seriously protect yourself and your families there's nothing to fool around with in terms of my general message it's fight the fear you know, do things that that you that you want to do that you're afraid to do, that other people seem to be able to do easily. If you want to be something, and there's only one of that person in the world, then you have a right to doubt yourself. But if you want to be something that millions of other people can do, then you have no right to think that you can't do it. It's reverse egotism. So fight the fear and go out and conquer the things that are holding you back so that you can achieve your goals and be the person that you were meant to be. And that's it. Well, that's great. Uh, I, I adore you. I think you know it. I think you know that you, you and I are connected in a very special way, and I really appreciate yes. all of your time and your effort and your good words and your in Bohemian Rhapsodies, uh, the dad says, uh, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. That's you. Thank you. Man. Feeling is mutual. I enjoy being on with you. And I wish you well. Stay safe, Corey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your effort. Thank you, Jeffrey. See you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.